We'll be in John chapter 20 in just a moment to begin, John chapter 20. And while surely we'll allude to some other passages, especially in application, we're going to be in the Gospel of John in large part this morning. So you might just get comfortable in the Gospel of John. It's a blessing as usual to be with you this morning and to be able to worship together. We're thankful for visitors. We want you to know you're our honored guest. And we're certainly hopeful that you'll come back and be with us again if you have another opportunity. Among our number this morning are those who are coming back from a long vacation, the Carlsons. And it's good to see them and be able to spend time with them and worship with them this morning. We're thankful for their blessing that they've been to the church in Blue Springs. We're thankful to see them, though, this morning. In John chapter 20, I appreciate Will a reading from that passage just a moment ago to prepare our minds, we have a very familiar account to us where one of the twelve is seen separated from the others when Jesus first appears. And then as they tell him what they'd experienced in witnessing the resurrected Lord, he seems to express some doubt and wants to see for himself. And for that reason, he's been given the name Doubting Thomas, where the gospel bears his name, Thomas, the twin, called the twin, Didymus, depending on your translation, that being a transliteration of the Greek word, speaking about a duplicity, a twin. We give him the name Doubting Thomas. I think that there's some legitimacy to that. I also think that we need to think about him in a fair way. Consider him in regard to what is actually going on there in John chapter 20, as well as the backdrop of his character that is manifested in the gospel. But I think also we need to approach this in a sobering way and consider it as a specific revelation decided on by the Holy Spirit. This happened historically, but John's gospel is the gospel that records it. And what is written is written for our learning. What is written is written for our admonition. It's written for us to reflect on it, to see ourselves in it, to ask ourselves the question whether we're measuring up to God's will, whether we need to improve in an area. It's written for our belief, as John's gospel is. And so instead of just thinking about Thomas in regard to Well, we shouldn't be like him. He was doubting. Why did he doubt? Why couldn't he just accept it before having to see Jesus himself? I think we need to consider whether or not Thomas is representing us. And I think in a large part, he is. I think that we can see ourselves in Thomas. And speaking from my own experiences growing up in in the church, as we like to say, I always like to see things and thought of things in a very black and white manner. Now, truth is black and white. So let's understand the context I'm talking about. But, you know, when someone is given the truth, they should just accept it, right? Well, theoretically. Isn't faith supposed to be expressing a a strength of character and and trust in Jesus? And if we really trust in Jesus, that's going to be pretty steady going through. And I, I used to think of it that way. Why can't these people get it. Why can't these people understand it? Why, why are these people struggling with following Jesus? And of course, as we grow older, we start to experience some difficulties ourselves, and we realize that faith is, 
is something that manifests in an interesting way where trust in Jesus does not necessitate perfection. We often understand that and express that. But faith is a journey, and, and we see that with Bible characters, but we also see it just in the teaching of, of Jesus, where babes in Christ have a rocky road ahead, and they need to be willing to count the cost and, and grow and mature. But as we mature, the difficulties change, but in ways intensify, and doubts arise, fears arise. And, but what faith does is it's not a life void of those things. But it's a life which deals with them in a way that Jesus prescribes. And I think that's what we see with Thomas. It's, it's not a, a movie that we see where he's the hero and he's perfect throughout. He doesn't do anything wrong. He's, he's got everything figured out and, and everyone else is wavering. But he's, he's stalwart in his, his decision to follow Jesus and, and he's a rock. That's not really what we see. Even with Peter, who Jesus calls a rock, we see that that waver, that that struggle, that that journey of faith and growth. What's interesting to me is how we call him doubting Thomas. But it's the gospel of belief that tells us the most about him. All the gospels are written for our belief to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, to to strike that cord of faith in us so that we can put our trust in him for salvation. John specifically mentions that at the end of his gospel, in the end of chapter 20, that many other signs were done but aren't written for us. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thomas is mentioned in the list of apostles throughout the gospel and then in Acts chapter 1. He's one of the chosen ones. He's mentioned when the apostles are mentioned, whether specifically named or just by virtue of his association with Jesus and those other ambassadors of Christ. But John's gospel is the only gospel which talks about him in regard to his personal experiences. There are three main things that we're going to look at this morning that help us to understand where Thomas is coming from, I think I was saying John, where Thomas is coming from, John records that for us. And it's interesting that it's the gospel of belief that does that, because when you look at Thomas, you don't see what we would in theory think about in regard to a, a life of faith, discipleship. But when we look at Thomas, we see reality, we see it being realistic for us. And in fact, it did happen. But I think that's what we get from a character like Thomas that is provided for us by the record of the Holy Spirit. Just like in the Old Testament, the gory details of failures of faith are not spared. So this man in his struggle of faith is not spared. Because if we, we see faith just through this lens of always doing what is right, never having any struggle it's not going to be realistic for us. And I think we're setting ourselves up for failure. And Thomas doesn't represent an excuse for faith failure, but he represents a realistic relationship with the truth and with Jesus and the resolve to always strive, as we studied in Luke 13, to enter by the narrow gate. But it's difficult. That's what it means. It's straight. It's narrow. It's constricted, it's hard, 
But Thomas, through the difficulty, is striving. He's not without flaw, certainly. But his story is an enlightening story and a helpful account helps us see the deep struggles that might confront us in faith. And it helps us to see how to pursue and what to pursue. And it helps us to see that there is victory with the Lord's help on that other side. And so in John chapter 20, Thomas shows his doubt. But I want us to backtrack a little bit to John chapter 11. He has been also called in this context by many of the courageous pessimists. And I think we'll see why. In John chapter 11, you remember where Jesus knows of some sisters, Mary and Martha. They have a brother named Lazarus and they were instrumental in his ministry. They're of the women who were ministering to him and the apostles and, and helping support him. And there's a, a moment in Luke's gospel where Jesus is in Bethany at Mary and Martha's house and we remember that Martha is worried about many things. Mary has chosen the good part. And so there's a relationship that is manifestly evident with Jesus and these women and their brother. And what John 11 demonstrates is that Lazarus has grown ill. The news of that has reached Jesus by messenger. So in verse 7 of John 11, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea. He had remained two more days after hearing of his illness, but I want us to notice the disciples' reaction in verse 8. And I want to stress that this is the disciples' reaction. They're all saying this, they're all feeling this way. When Jesus says, Let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? We know their journey is a series of pictures of growth. They don't yet understand and comprehend the nature of the kingdom as Jesus does. They're not fully going to understand that until they receive the revelation of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And they're going to come into that realization of all that Jesus had taught with, with this, this perfection of knowledge through the Holy Spirit as they are able to preach infallibly and reveal the plan of salvation and the nature of the kingdom. But right now they're they're confused about some things. And one of the things that they're confused about here is that Jesus wants to go to Judea where there are men who have made it very clear they wish to harm him. Back in John chapter 7 and verse 1, it says these things Jesus, after these things Jesus walked in Galilee for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And we're familiar with John chapter 8 where the account of Jesus's ministry progresses. And in verse 58, Jesus makes this startling statement to the Jews who have a lot of problems with him and are claiming he is a Samaritan with a demon. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They're speaking about how he, after he says, if you hear my words, you will not die, makes himself greater than Abraham and the fathers who we're faithful and are dead. And, and is your word greater than what we read of them and from them? And so he, he makes the clear statement that he is greater. Before Abraham was, I am. Then you notice in verse 39 or 59, they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. They're trying to kill him. His, his teaching of truth has stirred up the masses 
and has caused a lot of conflict and strife and division as we studied before. They want to take his life. The same thing occurs in John the 10th chapter as the account progresses, getting up to our context of John chapter 11. You notice in verse 30, he makes another startling statement. I and my father are one in John 10 and verse 30. So the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? And they said, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. He demonstrates that that is not wrong in and of itself. Even your law calls judges gods in verse 34 and 35. The scripture cannot be broken. But then in verse 39, they sought again to seize him and he escaped out of their hand. In verse 40, it says he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. So Jerusalem is the hot spot. Judea is the hot spot. And as we see throughout his ministry, there were times when if Jesus committed himself to that area or to a certain crowd, they would take his life. Things would escalate to that degree. So he recedes, he departs because his time is not yet there. That's what we see going into John chapter 11. He's not in Judea because if he was in Judea, he'd die by the hands of those who hate him and seek to stone him and seek to kill him. Now he hears of Lazarus being sick and he wants to go to Judea and his apostles, very understandably so, are taken aback by this erratic and reckless decision on their account. You know what's laying there for you. You know what's waiting for you in Judea. Why is he wanting to go where people want to kill him? And notice Jesus's resolve in verse nine of John 11. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is dead set and focused and resolved to do his father's will, no matter the environment. It is day and it is time to go manifest the father's glory and his glory in the working of these miracles. In fact, in John chapter nine, he said a similar thing. When you remember, they came upon a man who was blind from birth and his disciples in John nine and verse two said, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? You remember what Jesus said there in verse three? Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. That's that's what he's saying in John 11. I know the the threats that are there in Judea. I I'm here for a purpose. And if that stirs up more anger against me, if that puts me in more harm's way, I am resolved to go and manifest the father's glory through this. He said in John 11 in verse four, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the son of God may be glorified through it. That's what he said in John nine. This is an opportunity, in other words, to to heal this man and show people that I am God in the flesh that they'll turn to God through me. But remember the context of John 9. This is the Sabbath day here. Did Jesus know it was the Sabbath day? Verse 14 says it was the Sabbath day. And as he healed a man on the Sabbath, did he know how the Pharisees would react? Jesus is not ignorant of the context, of the timing of this. But he sees an opportunity to manifest God's glory, to to show who he is. And it's day he's got to work no matter the danger. 
And, and so long as it's not my time, I'm not going to stumble in this either. And so we can go to Judea. If it's not my time to die, then God's going to protect me from this. But regardless, I've got to do the works of my father. And so back there in John chapter 11, Jesus says very clearly after they thought he was speaking about Lazarus just taking rest and sleep, Lazarus is dead. And he says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, but that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. I hear you. And he's dead. And where they would might be inclined to think, well, we waited too long. We might as well stay now. He says, nevertheless, let us go to him. This is when Thomas speaks up. There in verse 16, Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now back up there to verse eight. And they told him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you are going there again. He said, let's go there. And Thomas is pessimistic about it. Oh, he's going to his death. He, he doesn't have some optimism that is fresh with, with a perspective of God's power that, that Jesus is not going to stumble as long as it's light and it's his time to do the Father's will, but not to die yet. He doesn't have that optimism. He's pessimistic, but he says, let's go die with him. And so when we, we talk about his doubt in John chapter 20, understand this perspective. He may have some things to work on. We're to rejoice in the Lord. We're to, we're to have solace in the Lord and in his presence. We're, we're to be optimistic about the Lord's will and about God's protection providentially and throughout our lives. And, and Thomas is, is a pessimist here. But he's a man of faith. He's no pretend disciple. Where the other disciples said, we're not going to go. That's, that's a bad idea, Jesus. And he was a part of that when Jesus persisted in his resolve. Thomas said, you know what? I'll follow you, Lord, to death. That's essentially what he's saying. I'll go die with him. Let's go die with him. And he's encouraging the other disciples to go die with the Lord. He's not without flaw. I understand that. He... He tends to lean toward gloom and despair, but he is devoted to the Lord. That's his faith. He is a courageous disciple. But you know, we, we progress in the story, the account of Jesus in his ministry. And we get to another interesting occasion where, where Jesus is in the upper room with his apostles. These are the last things he's going to say to them before he goes to the garden and is betrayed and is tried unjustly and then dies on the cross for the sins of them and for the sins of the entire world. He's got some important things to tell them before he goes. And one of those things is seen in John 13 and verse 33, where he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and so he's telling them he's going away. The, the loved one of the, the disciples, the apostles, the one they looked up to, the one they sought for guidance, he's about to leave them. And it's not like the environment has gotten any better. They're there in the city now. They're experiencing the turmoil. They know the environment that they're in. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave you. They don't understand what he means by that. But the very fact that their friend and loved one in Christ, their master teacher, their God, they made the confession, is about to leave them 
brings them great sorrow. Simon Peter said in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? And, and Jesus didn't give him a straight answer. He said, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you know you shall follow me afterward. I want us to pick up there in chapter 14 because Jesus elaborates on where he's going. He says, let not your heart be troubled. This may bring you great trouble and confusion and stress, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places, literally. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. I want us to remember what Peter said. Lord, where are you going? He said, wherever I'm going, you can't follow me. But now he's told them. I'm going to the Father. And you know what? He doesn't just tell them where I'm going to the Father, but I'm preparing a place for you to come to the Father as well. And then he says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. If Jesus tells me, you know something, what am I to say? Am I going to question him? He knows the hearts of men. He knows what I know and what I don't know. And he's telling the disciples here, you know where and you know the way. But notice who speaks up. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus just told them, you know. And Thomas disagrees with him. No, I don't. You think the Lord is accurate about his estimation of their knowledge of what he's talking about? He says, you know, and Thomas says, no, I don't, Lord. How can we? And that might be somewhat of an abrasive thing for us to read. How dare you, Thomas? But there's something good in this. There's something to be seen in this. Certainly they did know. Jesus has been teaching them all the time the way to the Father. You remember in John chapter 1 after Nathaniel is marveling at the fact that he knew he was under that tree and he calls him the king of Israel, the son of God. He says, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. The son of man is the link between heaven and earth. I am the way to the father. He said that way back in the beginning of his ministry in John chapter seven in verse 16 through 18, he's teaching in the temple and they're wondering about how he knows so much. And he explains in John seven sixteen, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And so he's teaching the way to the father. His doctrine is one with the father's doctrine. In chapter 8, before they would take up stones to throw at him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He'd go on to demonstrate that that freedom was from sin, which means you're coming to the Father through me, through my words. In John chapter 10, he is the figure of the shepherd, but also of the door. He's the door of the sheep. Verse nine of John chapter 10, I am the door and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In John chapter 11, when Mary and Martha are distraught about the loss of their brother Lazarus, he tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And so he's already demonstrated that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, all pointing toward the father. And so he was accurate when he said, you know, but Thomas said, no, we don't. I don't know. I don't know where and I don't know 
the way, though the Lord had just told him. That tells me something about Thomas. He was not content to have the kind of faith that some people actually have that always claims to know lest they stick out like a sore thumb. Oh, I know. You know, you're ever talking with a group of friends and they're talking about something, maybe it's politics or it's finances or something that that they're very passionate about and they know about. And that's just not really your thing. And, and you kind of act like you're following them. I've had that experience and I have no idea what's going on. But Thomas isn't like that. He knows that what Jesus just said must be true, but it's not true for him. That's not how he's feeling. And so he's willing to voice his own concerns. I, I want to know, I want to understand but I'm not going to say I do when I know that I don't. He's showing true honesty. In fact, he's too honest to avoid being seen as ignorant and slow to understand. He doesn't care about what the implications might be before the other disciples. He doesn't want to settle. He wants clarity. And so he's the honest inquirer. Some inquire from dishonesty. They, they see the truth, but that they ask a loaded question and a method to justify themselves or to exonerate themselves from evil or from sin. You remember in Luke chapter 10, what the scribe asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's wanting to justify himself. That's not what Thomas is doing here. You know, God, you say, I know Jesus. You say, I know the, the, the where and, and the way to that where. You know, but I'm not willing to go that way. So I'm going to act like I'm just kind of foggy on this. That's not what he's doing. He wants to go. He wants certainty. He wants to know in actuality. And so he asked and Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So we see a man that is not flawless. He's he's not perfect. He doesn't know everything. But a man who's willing to follow the Lord anywhere and everywhere at whatever cost it may be, even if he may think that what Jesus is going to do and what he's calling me to follow him in doesn't really make much sense to me, but I'll go die with him. And then when Jesus tells him things that are obviously of great importance and that he says you should know, he's not willing to just act the part. He wants to know. And so when we get to John chapter 20, I don't think it's any different. This man has an intense faith and character and a depth of love for Jesus that we need to try to match. But he's real, he's sincere, he's genuine, and he's not willing to just act like he's okay with something when he needs a little bit extra in order to know. In John chapter 20 and in verse 19, the same day Jesus was raised, the first day of the week, the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But notice in verse 24, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. 
Some suggest that he was not with them. And some of you may relate to this because he was the type that grieved in solitude. I want to be with with my family. I want to be with those closest to me. And and sometimes that's in solitude away from others on the outside. But there's some people, they got to be alone. Maybe that's what was going on here. And so even from the start, you might wonder, well, where is Thomas? That, That doesn't look good, Thomas. But he was so close to the Lord, so invested in his mission that he's extremely distraught. And he's apparently the type, perhaps, that needs to be alone. He's not he's not grieving and absent because he lacks faith, but because he had so much faith that he's struggling with the weight of this grief and confusion. That's what's happening here. Don't discount his character at this point. The other disciples saw him. So there in verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of his nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. We might balk at that a little bit. He puts a a condition on this. He's saying, unless something happens, I will not believe. It almost at first glance sounds like he doesn't want to believe. They just told him, eyewitness testimony. We saw the Lord. And you can imagine the expression of joy on their faces and in their countenance. And he says, I'm not going to believe unless something happens. It might seem, if we don't know about Thomas and we don't read the rest of the context, that he's just kind of given up and he's not going to listen to anybody. He's separating himself. There's not an amount of evidence I can receive, but there is, isn't there? He wants to believe. He wants to believe. He's devoted to belief. In fact, again, this is the gospel of belief and the only gospel that details his faith in this fashion, but it includes his struggle. I think he represents the struggle of faith. He needs the evidence. And I think if we we read Luke's account in Luke chapter 24, we get a a better understanding of of maybe what's going on here. And and we understand he's not so different than the other disciples. It says there in John chapter 20 and verses 19 through 23 that Jesus appeared to them. He, He showed them his scars and they saw him and Believed, but I want us to notice how Luke records it in Luke chapter 24 and verse 36. As they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, Luke 24, 36, and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. So evidently appearance was not enough at that time for the rest. And so he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts, but we call him doubting Thomas. So he says, behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Say, Thomas, why do you need to not just see him, but handle him? Jesus made himself available to be handled by the other disciples. Thomas is not so different, is he? But notice in verse 40, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41, and while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and ate in their presence. And so see the contrast here. 
He appears to them and they think he's a spirit. They handle him and they still do not believe. Yes, it says for their joy, but it says they still did not believe. I can imagine them matching the saying that we often say it's just too good to be true. Which is somewhat a form of pessimism, isn't it? It's too good to be true. And you can imagine as we go back to John chapter 20 and they see the the rest of the evidence Jesus provides where where a spirit does not, a phantom does not eat, consume material food. That's just further proof after they've handled him. And you can imagine in John, John chapter 20 when they finally fully embrace the fact that their Lord lives, the joy on their face when they tell Thomas, you ever have someone come up to you with such joyful news that seems too good to be true. So you want to check the facts. You didn't see it. You didn't witness it. You didn't read that article that they found that good news in or whatever that may be. And so Thomas is not inclined to be moved by emotions merely. Now, I'm not suggesting that eyewitness testimony is not legitimate because it is. And that's what we have. But Thomas was not willing to say, oh, I'll take your word for it. That's enough because it wasn't for him at the time for good or bad. It wasn't enough at the time. So he said, I need to see. You notice there in John chapter 20 and in verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Eight days, a whole week had passed where Thomas is with these 12 men and they're rejoicing they're trying to convince him you can just imagine the room and for eight days he remains but he still has not accepted what they're saying thomas was with them though jesus came the doors being shut stood in the midst of them and said peace to you you know what's interesting in eight days he remains with them we can learn a little bit about the other disciples we don't see that they're deriding him for his doubts we, we don't see that they're acting as though they're better than him and that Thomas, you just must not want it at all. Why would he stay with them for eight days? They're trying to help him along this path. When we doubt, we don't need to undercut each other, but help each other believe. He sincerely wants to believe, but he's sincere about his doubts. And so the combination results in a struggle. But you notice not an abandonment, a struggle, not an abandonment. He's striving. And so in verse 27, Jesus manifests his divine knowledge, miraculous knowledge. And he says, in response to what he knows, Thomas said, though not in his presence, reach your finger here and look at my hands, reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing, you know, he knew Thomas's heart. Early in the Gospel of John, Jesus did not commit himself to some people because he knew the hearts of men. He knew they didn't really want it. He knew they wouldn't receive it. And so he did not commit himself to them because they would not commit themselves to him. You remember the account in Mark chapter 9 of the man who struggled with belief. And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think Jesus knows that about Thomas. He's not writing him off. In fact, Thomas says, unless I I feel the scars, I will not believe. I see the scars and feel the scars. I will not believe. And evidently, Jesus saw it fit to provide what he said he needed. And so you see, with every claim of Thomas is the command of Jesus. He says, unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails 
And Jesus says, reach your finger here and look at my hands. That's an imperative. Do it. And put my hand into his side, Thomas said. And Jesus said, reach your hand here and put it into my side. He said, I will not believe unless I see these things and feel these things. He says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus provided what he needed. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, if you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. If you ask, you will receive. And so what we see is the grace of God and Jesus's provision. And you notice something in contrast to the other disciples in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. The other disciples handled him at his offer. And they did not believe for their joy. Thomas said, unless I feel him, I will not believe. Jesus let him handle him and he pronounces a great confession. My Lord and my God, he's God. Thomas knows it. There's no doubt at this point. He knows it. But you know what? Jesus said, be believing. Do not be unbelieving. That was his choice. You see, he never entertained unbelief. He just wanted true belief. That's the point of Thomas's story. He never is entertaining unbelief. He's always seeking faith. He's always seeking truth, but he's not willing to just compromise in these areas. He wants it to be seated and grounded. He wants it to be true. And so Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so it's not that there's no flaw whatsoever. But he's giving him as an example. I think Thomas stands in our place. You had to see and handle me to believe. Others don't have that, but you represent them. You, they don't need to handle you because Thomas, you did and you handled him and you believe Jesus did many other signs, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. You know, in Acts chapter one, when Judas Iscariot is being replaced, we see one of the qualifications of an apostle is to have walked with Jesus in his ministry and witnessed him as being raised from the dead. In fact, in John's epistle in first John chapter one and verse three, he says that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. He said there in verse uh, one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Thomas needed what the other disciples needed. And what this tells me is that what Thomas needed, the Lord knew and he provided, but also what the Lord provides us, we ought to seek in full confidence and contentment. If Thomas didn't need that, if Jesus didn't think he needed it, he wouldn't have provided it, but he did. He provides always what we need, nothing more and nothing less. Thomas stands in our place. He wants to believe. He's not entertaining unbelief. You know, sometimes we talk about doubts and we talk about where those fit. And someone has asked me before even, you know, what do you think about doubting? Even belief in God, what do you think about doubting? But the thing is, is that doubts in themselves are not necessarily sinful. It's how we how we deal with them. Why are you doubting? Perhaps is sinful versus not. Are, are you doubting because you're wanting to go into the world and 
abandon the truth? Or is it sincere? You want the truth, but you're not going to settle for just accepting what the crowd is accepting, accepting what your family is accepting. There's a big difference there. We're learning about faith here. Thomas shows us a lot about it. Just a few quick applications. I want to tell you, we learned from Thomas that true faith is based in evidence. He needs the proof. And sometimes we talk about faith as if it's just a blind leap. It's not. In fact, when the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight, he's not saying not without, without any sight whatsoever. Certainly without physical sight in many ways. Certainly as we, we hope in faith, it's without receiving the object of our hope. We don't see it, we don't possess it, but, but we, we anticipate it with great confidence. So it's without sight, it's walking by faith. But I want to tell you, faith is, is seeing. It's seeing evidence. In Hebrews the 11th chapter in verse 1, describing faith for us, the Hebrew writer says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Don't misunderstand this. He's not saying that when someone asks you why you believe what you believe, that your answer should be, well, because I have faith. That's not an answer that God wants us to give. In 1 Peter 3, it tells us to be prepared to answer them in meekness and fear. Faith, it's resting on a pile of evidence, a mountain of evidence. Yet that evidence is, is not the thing itself. For example, in Hebrews 11 and verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen are not made by the things which are visible. But do we see God? No. We see the evidence of God. That's the difference. Faith believes based on evidence that is provided. In Romans 10 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul demonstrates it this way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so faith is, is not naive. It's not lazy. It's not careless. It's not emotional in substance. The emotions come from the faith provoked by the evidence. And, and that's not just about Jesus being the Christ. It's not just about God existing, but it's about what we believe in doctrine and how we lead our lives in morals and all principles of faith. We need to dig in the word of God because that's where we find faith in evidence. And along those lines, true faith's skepticism is always in pursuit of truth. And that, that may seem like a contradiction of terms there. True faith's skepticism. But didn't we see it in John chapter 20? When he said in verse 25 of John chapter 20, unless I see and feel, I will not believe. That's skepticism. That's doubt. He's struggling with this. He doesn't believe the report, but he wants to believe. He, he, he believes other things. He wants to believe this. Help my unbelief. But that's true faith skepticism. It's always searching. So it's not going to give up just because it's not there yet. It has that confidence that it'll get there. This is vastly different from what we see in the world, though. The world is pharisaical, though they will call true believers Pharisees. You remember in Matthew 12 and verse 38, one from the Pharisees and scribes said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Some people seek 
with dishonesty. They don't really want to know. They're actually seeking to have another excuse to give. That's not true faith. True faith may be faced with the challenge of doubt, of of information that challenges us with what we believe in. We've got to search to make sure we know the actual truth. But that's completely different than looking for reasons not to believe. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks about some people as he looks to the last days of which they were a part at that time and how men will love themselves and be corrupt and be participating in sinful things. He speaks about some false teachers and how they creep into households and make captives gullible women loaded down with sins and led away by various lusts. Speaking of these women, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Their sin is a part of that problem. You know, some people ask a lot of questions and at times you can get frustrated with that. Why can't you get it? But there's a big difference between someone asking a lot of questions, always seeking to learn, but it's because they're trying to find loopholes. You, you say, I've got to live this way. God's word says I've got to live this way. But what about this, that, and the other? And, and what they're trying is to find some contradiction or loophole to, to where they're not amenable to that responsibility anymore. These women are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth because sin is sitting between them and their God. But he tells Timothy, you must rightly divide the word of truth, which, which is a constant struggle in itself. And so truth is pursued even in the midst of doubts. And that's what true faith looks like. To the extent that even in our living for Christ day to day, we're perfecting holiness and the fear of God, cleansing ourselves from filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And so true faith pursues holiness, not proximity to the world. It doesn't ask questions in an attempt to get closer to the world. It's seeking Jesus to be sanctified by the truth and completely separated. Why are you asking your questions? Is it to truly find what God wants for you? Or are you wanting to be able to fit into the world with an ease of conscience? Thomas wanted the truth. His skepticism was in pursuit of the truth, not in pursuit of an alternate lifestyle from Jesus. And lastly, true faith is a choice. It's always a choice. You know, Jesus led him by offering him what he requested, but he had to tell him the choice is yours. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. It's interesting back in the sixth chapter when men asked Jesus what they must do to work the works of God, he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Explain later on in that very context that no one comes to me unless the father is who has sent him draws me, draws him. They'll be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And so it takes effort. It's always a choice. And Matthew chapter 11 Jesus thanked God for something very interesting that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. And then he makes that invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's that's a choice. 
All could see it, but there are some people that are choosing pride, choosing arrogance. They're, they're choosing their knowledge and their way. They are the prudent and it's hidden from them. The ones that choose humility, as 1 Corinthians 3 instructs, no one deceive himself. If you seem to be wise in this age, become a fool that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. It's a choice. You get to choose. And there are some people that are too wise to choose to believe in this kind of solid evidence. Their wisdom is actually foolishness. It's always a choice. In, in any walk of our faith, and I want to stress that this morning, any walk of our faith, I'm not just talking about if you're struggling with your faith in, in God's existence or in Jesus being the Messiah. Those things need to be worked through. That's the start. But if you're sitting here without any doubt about God's existence and that Jesus is reigning at His right hand, having died for our sins and conquered that death, giving us hope. But you're wondering about how God wants me to live in this certain way. Or why do we do this in this way as a church? Why why are we doing this and, and being different from the denomination? It involves every single aspect of our faith. Why are you asking your questions? What are you actually pursuing? And this is what Thomas does for us. If you're struggling to comprehend and and, and be very, very focused and, and sure about what you're doing and how you're living your life and, and how we practice things here at this place. You're struggling. Do you want the truth or, or are you wanting to be closer to the world? This is true faith. Don't be unbelieving. You're not pursuing unbelief. We should always be pursuing belief. And I want to tell you, Jesus' promise is certain even this day. If you're pursuing it, you will find it. If you don't find it, you weren't pursuing it. Don't deceive yourself. Thomas gives us a real picture of faith and its struggle and the fact that it is a journey. And we need to strive like Thomas did. We need to pursue belief and leave unbelief in the rearview mirror. If you're here this afternoon and you haven't obeyed the gospel, do not be unbelieving, but believing. These things are evidently sufficient for your faith. Jesus proved absolutely that he's the son of God and that he's the only way to the father. And he has been kind enough. God has to be patient with us to this point. Don't be unbelieving, but come with faith this afternoon and obey the gospel of Christ. If we can assist you in any spiritual way, come forward while we stand and sing. The song is selected.